You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right. Good morning. All right. So, uh, yeah, we're starting the book of Genesis. So just open your Bible. Basically, page one. (laughs) Not a lot of difficulty in finding that. Genesis chapter one. So just to be completely honest, which we encourage everyone to do here, including our pastors, uh, it's a bit of a daunting task to think of uh, our church learning all the way through, preaching all the way through the book of Genesis. Uh, It's by far, at least in terms of the history of our church, the longest book we've ever tried to work through. but I was just laughing with uh, Danny in the back of the room earlier because he was, he was asking about it. And I said, uh, it's kind of been concerning to me that every time somebody asks, so what are we doing next? And I say, oh, we're going to go through Genesis. The first question is, when is that going to end? <laughs> it's like, it hasn't even started. You're ready for it to be over. <laughs> and the, usually the honest answer is sometime around the date of Jesus' return, I think. But... <laughs> Uh, we're, we want to, I, I, I say this just to kind of set you up for expectations, um, we normally don't try to say everything that could be said about every word in the Bible. We try to say based on the themes or, or the ideas that the Bible is communicating in context, that's what we want to communicate. So sometimes uh, where, where the writer stops and spends a lot of time explaining, we'll stop and spend that time, and where he doesn't, we'll keep moving because that wasn't his point. We're not going to make it our point. So the same is here with Genesis. We'll, we'll work real hard to say everything that God is saying, and we'll work hard not to get bogged down in things he's not saying. That's particularly important here in the beginning of Genesis. There's a lot of controversy uh, surrounding these words uh, but again, we're not going to try to address every controversy, and we'll get into why in just a little bit. But what we do want to do here is read. And I'll be honest with you, we're going to be doing a lot of reading together over the next several months. Uh, most of our passages are not going to be three, four verses or, or a paragraph even, but they're going to be whole chapters. There's going to be long, uh, long stories, narratives that are unfolding for us, and we're not going to try to chop those up where the Bible doesn't chop those up. Sometimes there may be things we need to stop and learn from, but we want to get the stories in their context. And so, um, I, I actually, you know, we Billy, who you just heard from, our church planting resident, uh, got the shortest passage on the calendar so far next week of the first few verses of chapter 2, but then he got chapters 5 and 6 in March, so just to pay him back. It doesn't mean the sermon will be short. No, no, it'll still, be, it'll still be a good 45 minutes, strictly. All right. So I, I hope that we can have fun with this. I, I hope that it'll be a, a good journey for us to just really continue to grow in our awareness of God the character of God, the nature of God, the power of God, and to see how he's setting the stage for Christ uh, will just, I think, be a really powerful and beneficial thing for us. So let's read the first chapter of Genesis together, and then we'll ask him for some help just for our time here right now. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. 
And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits bearing fruit bearing uh, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for telling us that you made the world. For telling us that you made everything that is. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to grant us faith, confidence in you and in your word. Lord, please help us now by your Spirit to learn from you. And Lord, let us learn to be in awe of you, inspired by you, humbled by you, let us find our place, Lord, in your creation, by your design, according to your will. We love you, God. We so appreciate you, your grace, that you would come and fellowship with us and teach us and even give us your spirit so that we could know the truth and know you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... In every biblical passage, the first thing you have to understand is context. You have to understand who was saying this and who were they saying it to. 
and how would it have been received by those people? So the context here is just equally as important as any other kind of New Testament passage that's saying live like this, don't live like that, do these things or say these things or understand this about God. It's just as important here because when we see God creating, we want to know why. And we want to know why he created in the way he created and why he communicated the story of his creation in just the way that he did. We also want to know why he didn't say the things that he didn't say. But this is our context. And all we can know is what God actually said. And we can know why he said it when he says why. So context is really important here, and it's important for you to understand that these words were, of course, inspired by God, by God's Spirit. The writer of the words was, at least 99% of theologians agree, it's very consistent to believe that Moses recorded these words. As Moses was interacting with God in a way that no one ever had before, uh, really seeing God face to face, which was a, just a completely unheard of thing, in this tent of meeting, in the wilderness, among all the Jewish people, as they're moving between Egypt and the promised land of Canaan, where they would eventually be, Moses recorded these words that God gave him. And they were written to the Jews. Jews who were wandering in a desert. Here's why that context is important. Because the Jewish people were not concerned with a lot of the things that we're concerned with right now. They were wandering in a desert for 40 years. Their concerns were life, survival, following this God who is at times visibly leading us through a wilderness with, with pillars of clouds and of fire and splitting seas for us to walk through and, and, and even killing enemies so that we would have safe passage to the place that he's leading us, seeing miracle after miracle and yet now finding themselves in this desert, the things that were on their hearts were, who is this God who's led us out here? And why has he done this? What's his purpose? Why do we even exist out here? And they, and they at times lost faith and they grumbled and complained and fastened other gods for themselves because they wanted to see him like they had seen him in the past, but he was distant. He was on the mountaintop with Moses at times and they were scared and so they lost faith. But it's understandable why they would have the questions that they did and we share a lot of those questions. Maybe not wandering in wilderness and desert, uh, but we understand the questions of wanting to know God's purpose, because in God's purpose, we find our purpose. Why do we exist? So a book written in a desert to Jewish people who were God's chosen people, his children in the world, we find this narrative recorded of God creating everything that physically exists. We understand that from the very first words of this, God is not a created thing. In the beginning, God. In the beginning doesn't mean in the beginning of time because time is a thing that God created. He created times, days, seasons, years, all these things, but he exists outside of it and, and time rolling forward is actually a system God created. You realize that? But God exists outside of it. He is before it. He'll be after it. God is independent of his creation. He's not a created thing. He's eternal. He's existed forever. And we'll get into more reasons why that's so important in just a few minutes. So another part of the context that's really important to understand, when you think of a Jewish person wandering in a desert, surrounded by all these enemies and different cultures, is to understand that Judaism was 
a very rare kind of religion, a very rare kind of spirituality. And one of the main things that, that distinguished it from all other religions is that it was monotheistic. There's one God. One God who created everything and is sovereign over all of his creation. All the other prominent religions of that day were polytheistic. There were many gods, sometimes innumerable gods. The Greeks had the god of the fireplace. Because, I mean, in a house built out of straw and mud, if a fire gets out of control, who do you appeal to to, get to save your house, right? Well, there must be some god of the fireplace. So let's pray to that God whenever we build a fire. Just gods for everything. And in all of these ancient mythological gods, there was a competition among them for who was going to be prominent, who was going to be famous. And they would even have this feeling of lack inside of them that they needed something from other gods or even from humanity that there were somehow voids in the hearts of the gods and they were desperate to fulfill themselves in their interaction with human beings. But here is a God who stands alone and independent and unneeding of anyone or anything. He is completely satisfied in himself as holy and good and fulfilling. He has joy before he creates So then, in this context, before we begin a journey through Genesis chapter 1, it's important to understand that God was not trying to explain to ancient Jews wandering in a desert, surrounded by polytheistic cultures, whether or not dinosaurs and humans walked on the earth together. Did, when we just read that a minute ago, did you see God trying to explain that in any way at all? Did you see God trying to explain whether or not there was a gap of billions of years between verse 2 and verse 3? No. He, he didn't take time to address that concern or that question. Whether or not animals existed in all the varieties then that they do now. Because you, you see God creating after their kinds, all these different kinds of birds and fish and animals, livestock, beasts, all these things, and they all have their categories, but was every, I mean, come on, how did Noah make a boat big enough? We have the dimensions, how does that work? God's not trying to answer that here, is he? How Adam and Eve's children found spouses? That's a question, right? Did God try to answer that question here? No. Those questions arrive out of a criticism of the text that it doesn't say everything we wish it said. Okay? So, so God said what he said about how he created the earth, and we wish he would have said some things that would help us fill in blanks, but he didn't. And here's where we come right out of the gates, learning what the Bible says about God, and God is already frustrating us. He's already saying, this is what I'm giving you. And you believe me, and trust me, and thank me for it, or you're in a sinful pursuit of knowledge that I have not granted you. So those questions are bad questions, but are they questions answered by God? Not necessarily. So we're not going to look for those answers here. That's my point. We're, and, and I mean, if you want to come with those questions, look, I know that we're not saying the Bible talked about dinosaurs and men and what the time, you know, was there an overload, whatever this kind of stuff, because the fossil records and blah, blah, blah. If you want to come and talk about that, let's talk, because the Bible's not afraid of these issues. It's just not altogether concerned with them in chapter one of Genesis. So we can talk about that, but... We're not going to preach the text as if the text is preaching that. So you can see God's not trying to convey these things. Here's what he is expressing. Through Moses. If you're taking any kind of notes, this would be a good point to start maybe jotting some things down. He is expressing that he is the one true God who created the universe in all of its magnitude, in all of its beauty, in all of its complication, out of his own good pleasure because he desired to create something he could interact with in love. 
That's what God did. He had no lack. He had no loneliness, just a pure and a perfect will to create something that he called very good. That's what God did. So we need to be ready to receive Genesis as God intended it, not looking for answers to 21st century scientific curiosities. But it's also true that Genesis 1, as we said, is not afraid of these other things. It's not afraid of our questions. And and we are never going to ask a question that leaves the Bible in an impossible situation. Just another thing we need to nail down here, working through Genesis, because this is the most ancient history. Nothing existed before this history, except God. So there's, there's a bit of a cloud in history this ancient, isn't there? The deeper you go through history, the more unclear things seem to become and differing opinions and differing accounts. And sometimes there'll be accounts from this culture that sound like the accounts from this culture and it makes you wonder which one came first. What, did one steal from the other or was that that's just the truth and there was two different vantage points? It makes you start asking questions when you get this deep into history. But there's no avoidance of a fight just a very particular fight that's being engaged in here by the scriptures to reveal the true and living God to his people. That's the fight that's being fought. But in an effort to debunk the Bible, parallels between the Genesis account of creation and other ancient accounts are pointed to seeking to lump the Bible into a category of like Mesopotamian and Greek mythologies and religions where there's a creative God and he's all powerful or he's among some powerful gods. And then there's a flood and there was anger against humanity and these kind. There are some themes that actually do run through ancient cultural mythologies. The problem with all of this is that unlike the religious myths, a faithful reading of the Bible reveals no inconsistencies with sound science and sound history. No inconsistencies. Do you know why the Christian religion perseveres, the Christian scriptures persevere as a staple of human understanding about history? It's because they're unassailable. Throughout history, no one has ever been able to say, aha, gotcha, finally found the error in the Bible that makes the rest of it illegitimate. That moment has never happened in human history. There have been many, many attempts as fallen human beings seek to be free from the rule of a God who's sovereign over his creation. Many, many attempts at people finding dark spots and finding inconsistencies in the scripture. And yet time always reveals that they are erroneous and that the Bible stands as true. I think probably... In fact, I I could say definitely, the Bible is the most reliable, well-preserved account of ancient history in the entire world. It's not even really debatable. Nothing else like this book exists. And the reason for this is simple. It's true. That's what we come back to. This, this chapter that we just read is true. That doesn't go without saying in modern Christianity. It's an important statement for us to all just come to grips with and submit to. What we just read is true. We may not understand all of it. We may not understand how it fits into our different understandings of history. And, and it may not fit with what modern worldly science says about ancient history, but regardless, it is true. Of course, it it takes faith to believe that because we have an enemy who would seek to discourage belief that this is true. Because there are things here about God and about us that our enemy would not have us believe. More than just the fact that there is a God who created the world, things about his nature and things about our nature 
that are very important for us as we seek to follow God and know Him. So I think the last 50 years has probably been the most confident that any human generation has ever been that they had successfully disproved Genesis chapter 1. Probably about in the last 50 years. And it's based on this thing famously known as the Big Bang Theory. And again, God is not trying to address opposing views here, but I think it's important for us to say, because it's directly an attack on this account, the Big Bang is the world's best attempt at disproving God's existence, or at least giving a viable alternative, something that maybe you could even nod at, that would just at least plant some seeds of doubt. But the unanswerable question, the way that the Big Bang theory, the best that the world has to offer in terms of skirting around the truth of God, the unanswerable question and the major problem that every four-year-old physicist has in their minds is, where did that come from? Right? Where did that come from? Well, that came from rocks. Where did the rocks come from? Well, the rocks came from chemical compositions that in a very hot environment, where did that come from? Well, of course, the heat was generated by the spinning of the universe. I mean, can you imagine something moving that fast and the friction of the molecules? Where did the, that come from? Here's the funny thing. It's tragic and funny all at the same time, but the leading pioneer in, in physicist thinking in the world right now is a guy... Sorry, is a guy who sits on panels, and I, I've actually seen the video, sitting on a panel, and it's like him, and then you got some, you know, spiritual guys, whatever. And the question comes up, where did everything come from? How do you get something from nothing? And he says, well, actually, the the most recent science is beginning to explain that nothing actually is something. <laughs> That's what the audience did. When he said it, they start cracking up because they think he's joking, and I swear to you, he goes just like this. Why are you laughing? <laughs> because you're nuts, man. Like, how, how, do, how does a leading physicist defy one of the fundamental laws of physics? with a straight face. The reason why is he doesn't know the creator of the laws. He doesn't want to know. He doesn't want to believe that that creator exists because as soon as he does, he's responsible. So it's tragic and funny all at the same time. But here we are. Here we are with these verses of God creating. And it says a lot about God. It says that he is unlike any other thing, doesn't it? There's nothing like God. When you stop and you read these verses, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The very first statement in your Bible makes you understand why throughout history people who know God have been saying, there is none like you. There's none like you, God. No one stands beside you, God. Because no one does. No one can. He's unlike, above, beyond, greater than any other thing. Romans chapter 1 talks about people exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Rather than worshiping the Creator, they worship what? Created things. Things that don't even compare. No one and nothing compares to the God of the Bible. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. When it talks about the earth was without form and it was void. That's a difficult concept for us to imagine because it looks like even things that are shaped badly have a shape. Like some of us think our bodies are shaped badly, but we can still recognize, amen, bro. 
we can still recognize that there is a form to it, even if it's an undesirable form. So this is a difficult thing for us to kind of get our minds around. But what the, what's actually being said here in the Hebrew is that there is chaos. There's a lack of design. There's a lack of order to the creation. So God created it all, but he hadn't yet formed it. He hadn't yet ordered it. It was chaotic. It wasn't the creation that we see now and experience now. And God is there and he's hovering, the Spirit of God, active in creation. And we see from Colossians that Jesus, the Son, was the conduit through which God created everything that is. So the, the triune God here is active in creation. And God said, 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 then God said. God doesn't have to lift a finger to create a universe. Is there anyone like God? He just says. Now again, you start thinking, okay, that when I see God in this light, and then I hear the rest of the Bible saying, your word, O Lord, your word, O Lord, that they were enraptured by his word, the power of it, the, the, the precision of it. Because God can just say, and something is. Something that was not becomes. No one else is like God. We won't get into every single detail and try to exhaust everything that is said about everything that God created, except to say that God created it and it was good. This, this is the refrain throughout this entire passage. God created and it was good. And then God created and it was good. Everything he does is good. And I know the question could, could start to come in, well, what about sin entering into the world? Well, keep in mind, we're in chapter 1, not in chapter 3. What God created was good. There's no error in his creation. There's no malfunction in his creation. It's perfect. It's perfect. And we'll see as we continue to work through Genesis, as humans, our, our first parents, get involved in creation and the place that God created for them to live, we'll see more about the beauty of that and how it represents a great future for us, an even better future than they had. But for now, let's be satisfied to know that God made the world and it was good. I want to draw your attention here to verses 25 through 31. Uh, sorry, verses uh, 26. Verses 26 through 31. Because you can see here, God creates, he says it's good. He creates, he says it's good. And we got these kind of very, almost, again, frustratingly succinct passages about God creating things. And he only says very little about those things he created. He doesn't start getting into species and class and all this kind of stuff, which would be so interesting. And someday I'm sure we'll know. But then he gets to verse 26, and you see he spends much more time on the last thing he created. And so we're going to do the same thing here. Verse 26, Then God said, You notice, and God said, and God said, then God said. There's something set apart about this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Yes, you read that right. You read that right. I know, we just made a huge deal. A monotheistic religion. One God who creates and reigns over his creation. And then you have God saying, let us. Let us make them in our image after our likeness. How can that be? Well, it's because 
we know that God is three distinct persons in one being. Which again, the reader reading this goes, what is God? There's nothing like him. He is three in one. And, and don't try to give me all that like, well, look, man, you're a dad and a son and a brother. Okay, but I don't exist in three distinct places all at once being those things in perfection. Well, what about H2O, water, ice, gas? Not all at the same time. They're all limited. God is unlimited. His identity is not an identity that's shared with anyone else. He stands alone. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So in the first five days of creating, five and a half even, he makes all these things and he just puts them in the earth. And then he creates a being that he wants to rule over all these things. All those things will be subject to the leadership of this last Unique creation. Let them have dominion over all the rest of creation. Now look at this, verse 27. Moses breaks into poetry here. You see it standing off in stanzas now? This is no longer just prose. This is like Moses begins to burst forth in a song. So God created man in his own image. He repeats, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is worship. It's adoring the God who creates. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Again, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, because Moses stopped to praise, let's stop. Let's recognize some truths here that are just mind-boggling and such a grace from God towards us. We are made in God's image and nothing else is. There's something about humanity that reflects the nature of God. Made in God's image, unique, bearing honor and value beyond any other created thing, a capacity for love and intimacy that's not shared by any other thing. Even though you see the monkeys, you know, where they throw the, like a, a, a dummy of a baby monkey dead into a jungle and they all look like they're mourning and they carry it around and everything and they like, so it looks like they're organizing a funeral almost and you're like, that's creepy. They're so like us, but they're not. They lack an understanding that God has wired into us to have joy, to grieve, because these are things that are in God. God has joy. God experiences grief. There are points in the scriptures where God is saddened by things. Even when he leads them out of the desert and the Jews are rebelling against him and unhappy with his leadership of them. And God says, I regret that I have saved these people. I'm just going to kill them. Moses pleads, please God, please don't. The world will just say that you led them out here just to kill them. Your name will be defamed. Please don't. God relents. God turns back. Isn't it strange to think of God that way? but he revealed himself that way. God rejoices at times over his creation, over his people, over salvation, over mercy. God rejoices. He has such an immense capacity, an untapped capacity that we don't really have a full experience of yet for love, for intimacy. 
that we have been given the earth to rule over under his authority puts us in a very unique position. What a grace from God. We can live here. We can use this place. Even here, you know, every seed-bearing plant for our food. But Ben was just telling me he got into some Carolina Reaper peppers the other day and made some wings and he regretted it. Which again is just a reflection of the character of God. But he had the capacity to make use of every, every seed-bearing thing. I'm surprised you were able to leave worship this morning, bro. And then listen to this. Male and female, he created them. So let's, let's work back through some of these ideas, particularly this. Made in the image of God. And male and female. Made in the image of God. Male and female. That means, according to this passage... There isn't really anything intrinsically more like God about a man than a woman. Both bear the image of God. Not one bears the image of God and one sort of bears the image of God, but with some differences. They both bear the image of God. So women, please do not feel that the Christian faith, the biblical faith, has in any way relegated you to some secondary position as a human. It has not. In fact, this book has done more to elevate women throughout history than any other system has. You are made in the image of God. Honor. Value. You bring something that men don't bring to the glory of God. And we need each other. Now, here's something really important that I feel like is misunderstood, misapplied, misappropriated in the church and leaves people feeling desperate at times and alone at times. And it's this, if God has created such a special place for humanity in his creation, and you notice he says it was good, it was good, it was good, and then after the sixth day of creating humanity, what does he say? It was very good. It was good, and then it was very good. Now that says something about God's plans for and God's pleasure in humanity. That there is an intrinsic God-given value to a human being that doesn't exist anywhere else in creation. So then, if there is some darkness in your heart, some part of you that's not been able to believe that you matter, an inner voice in your soul that condemns you as worthless and that your existence is pointless. I plead with you to hear God speak. You are made in his image. Nothing else in all creation has the kind of value that you have. And if I can, let me direct this again towards women. Not because we march with worldly feminists, but because we love God's creation. And what God values, we so value. I don't say this or set this apart because other things are less important or other people are less important. But I've lived through watching a woman raise children. And it can be a lonely existence. And a lot of you 
are at home a lot with children and you pour your life into those children. You give everything for them. You sometimes bleed for them. You work until you are at the point of exhaustion to serve your family. And it can very often feel pointless because broken human beings don't know how to appreciate that kind of sacrifice. And it is vitally important for you to understand that all of the quiet, labor that you have poured into other human beings without any recognition and often without experience any kind of dramatic fruit that seems to be in keeping with the level that you've given. God sees you and God values you. You are a person who was created by God and has honor because you're made in his image. You matter. You're important. Not because you matter to any other person, to any degree that encourages you, but because you matter to God. Now, something very interesting happens when we put Genesis in the context of the entire Bible, when we see it in its place and serving the purpose for which God communicated it, because it doesn't stand all by itself, it is a foundation. Genesis is a foundation and the rest of this book is built on chapter one where we see this family line set apart and God beginning to work purposes through that family line until we see a child given, a son born, whose name is Jesus. But Genesis stands as this foundation. Now, the New Testament is not unaware of this, this foundational aspect of the book of Genesis and even of chapter 1. I want to point your attention again to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from darkness. And now I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I know it's on the screen, but I think it would mean more to you if you saw it in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Starting at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For God, who said, let there be light, and then separated that light from the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, not light of the sun, not light of the day, but light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where do we find the knowledge of the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. So then, you see an escalation here Genesis chapter 1, all human beings are made in the image of God and have a value because they're valued by God above all the rest of creation. And then some among even those will enter into a realm of existence, a realm of walking in light that is not just the light that God created on day one, but a light that we see in the face of Jesus. And that will illuminate our lives 
in a much more dramatic and in an eternal way, even when this world that God created is crumpled up and thrown into the fire so that Christ would remake a new world for us, even that light will be extinguished, but the light of the face of Jesus will never end. Never end. In fact, in John's revelation, he says, in that day we'll have no need of the Son, for He Himself will be our light. We'll be living in a better place, a better world, a world that hasn't been corrupted by our sin. Wow. What a very good thing that God has created. What an eternally better thing it is we have in Christ. To know that Jesus made all this, that we corrupted it, and that he's going to give it back to us one day, even better than we found it, makes him the most gracious, the most wonderful, the most merciful creator. Could you imagine living life in a world created by any other God? Could you imagine if the myths were true and gods are fighting over our affections? But this is true. It is so good for us that God doesn't need us. It's so good for us that God is in control, that God's sovereign over his creation. It's so good for us that God is not limited in his power. And it's so good for us that even when we corrupt something good he made, he is unwilling to leave us stuck in that corruption. But he would make his way back into his creation and redeem it for his name's sake. What a great creator. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.